0: Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Watches, His Dark Materials, Series 2, Episode 3, Theft. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana.
1: Yes, Season 2, Episode 3, depending on who you are, where you are in the world.
0: Yeah, Episode 3, Theft, we are getting into the thick of it, of this book. We're looking at chapters, you know, 5, 6, 7, this kind of range, and not a lot happened in this episode. I don't mean that in a negative way, but it did feel lots of setup, lots of filler.
1: Yeah, we I think in the previous two episodes, right, we're doing the establishment of Will and Lyra's connection, and then the world building for Chittagong. And we get more world building here, and then Lyra's dynamics, right, in Will's world slash our world. And this is now the the setup for the plot of the season slash book.
0: Yes, for us to get to the climax, we have to uh, get on in there, get some alethiometers stolen, Mm -hmm. deal with some some sad rubble, and deal with some other stuff that we're going to get into. So, spoiler scope for this episode, if you are listening to us cover His Dark Materials, the TV show, we will cover the main books, the main trilogy, that is Northern Lights or The Golden Compass, depending on where you're from, The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. Uh, We also... May have some light hints about Books of Dust as we go along. Today we will not have a dust discussion, which is where we usually spoil the heck out of the Books of Dust. There's not a lot I want to dust discuss today with you all, but there is a couple, just a couple small details I'm going to spew throughout the text, so we'll get there. Yes. So, let's just dive into
1: it. We start off the episode with the aftermath of what has happened. Last episode, as the witches survey the loss, we have Seraphina's voiceover on finding Lyra, being very important, of course, that plays over the scene, while Mrs. Coulter also stares down in her round red hat and Seraphina saying that they must find Lyra. Seraphina's hand is surveying the damage.
0: We get a good look at Lena Felt, who in the books is the witch who's tortured. So I'm curious to see, we haven't met Judah Kaminin at all, yet, but I'm curious if they're going to move the role of killing Jopari to Lena, possibly? I'm not sure. We haven't seen enough there, but she was kind of a focal point of this scene.
1: Yeah, and I think that it could be interesting. They might even change the motivations for the death of Jopari. As we've discussed, we have Ruta hardly even bringing up Asriel, if at all, so far, which I think has been a fantastic change. So to change... The murderer of Jopari's like, motivations, I think, I it, it could potentially be
0: a very welcome change on my part. My thing is they have to. Yeah, I mean, they've already started adapting the witch plot in really great ways. This this destruction, this aftermath we're seeing, uh, this all flows really well in the plot. And you can tell that they've given Ruta Scotti a lot more already this season to go off of rather than just... Asriel and I were lovers once, and we have to fight for Asriel. He's going to save the worlds. They've changed that already, and they've changed it for the better. So, I am no pressure, guys, over at the HGM world. No pressure, but I, I'm you have to. You have to fix it. You have to do something here that will make me happy. So, I expect it. I expect it. <laughs> yeah. You know, the fogs are rising here in this destruction as they're looking around at the blackened trees and plants, uh, all that death of knowledge, if you think about the tree of knowledge we were talking Mm. about with our friend Lo. The fogs are rising, but there hasn't been a mention yet about these rising fogs specifically. There is a very small mention we'll get to later with Lee Scoresby, but still nothing. I'm waiting. I'm waiting.
1: Ah, there is. That's right.
0: We start getting more of it, and maybe
1: it'll come through more in this upcoming episode, right? for episode four especially since they've been alluding much more to will's age but in general you know the witches here they are angry and grief-stricken they are ready for revenge for pretty obvious reasons but lyra comes first for
0: for seraphina yes and not only does she come first here but she comes next in the next scene because we get lyra as we move on to the next scene ignoring the eletheometer's warnings It tells her not to go to Will's world again, but she steps through on her own anyway. She packs it up, leaves him a note. Pan even says to her, don't do it. This is a bad idea. And Lyra's like, think I'm going to do it. Yeah, I think that the show makes it more explicit when Pan's like, the alethiometer is
1: pretty clear on what we need to do. Interpretations of the alethiometer seem, I think, clearer in the show, right? Versus Lyra being like, he's a good murderer, but that's mostly in her head. (laughs) The good kind in the book where versus it sounds like that's a shade of the interpretation here. And I also just want to point out the Lyra flicking like her damp hands at pan every now and then because I'm five years old. Uh, I do that to people.
0: Oh, I do that to my partner all the time. Yeah, uh, that's, who that's who uh, incurs yeah, it. Yeah, who on people it. is. Yeah, I figure people is your partner. Yeah, I do that to my partner often. I usually use the ha-choo! Uh, ah. as a, a joke yeah so try that one out if you get a second just straight up you know when you're shaking your hands out just ha-choo and sneeze all over him get him it's my favorite I don't do that because I feel like it all telegraph it and I really you know want to get it in there surprise <laughs> <sighs> there's a lot of really good visual stuff happening here uh, Lyra watches Will through the window floorboard again that we see right in the last episode Will watched her from the floorboard and she watches him now through that Devastates me every time. Devastating. Mm, Yeah, it is. And something I was thinking about is that the quilts that Will has are patchwork quilts, and they're very bright that are over him. He's very cute, very asleep. You could say they're multicolored patchwork quilts, like Kurjava, his demon eventually, multicolored, uh, as that means in Finnish. We were reminded by Candid59 last week talking about that, but I actually think... The patchwork especially. I mean, his cat was a patchwork cat.
1: Oh, so. I didn't I didn't think about that or notice that. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's so much building up to what whales demon is going to be like. And I guess that makes sense because we keep talking about him being on the crux of adulthood.
0: Some of the most amazing shots of Chitigatse happen right here. We get a topward pan down view of all of the staircases. The ones we're very accustomed to from the intro, obviously. Uh, here in Chitigatse, though. And Lyra goes up. I find the floor plan really interesting, and this is because I've spent a lot of time with The Sims 4 and their new platform feature for building, Uh, so please disregard, but I am now into architecture, is what I'm trying to tell you all. (laughs) I'm a professional in The Sims 4. But the floor plan is really weird, because all of those levels of stairs have, at different points, have arches that you can go through. Mm. So it kind of works out to be different floors and mirrors that many worlds that we see in the introduction, right? Where the worlds collapse in on themselves and become smaller. It kind of mirrors that with this stacked kind of feel. And when we're coming out of that aerial pan over the city, it seems like Lyra is coming out of the arch she climbed up to. So it almost exists like a subfloor of Chittagatze, almost like how a subway would be set up with the different elevations of the weird city thing of Chittagatze and parts of the floor are kind of open for the tops of the buildings to peek through. I feel like it's interesting because we get the shot of the tower, the Tour de l'Angélie, in this pan overview, and I'm intrigued because later on in the episode, Angelica says to Will, there is no in and no out to that tower. So that kind of subway feel and how there's different levels, uh, it shows the tower being at the highest most, peeking through at the highest most, and There's no entrance in or out. It's implying, and especially here, that you're going to have to use a window or an arch, as Lyra's Mm. currently using an arch. But it's implying they're going to have to get a window in.
1: Yeah, I don't think I remember that being from the book. So that's an interesting addition. And, you know, this is dumb, but every now and then I still keep... This is not dumb so i am still continuing to just play through passively breath of the wild It's what i do in the background while i'm editing episodes to an extent keep having to pause for (laughs) obvious reasons i'm just like i don't understand the problem can not i just like fly up to it (laughs) (laughs) going through the window just hop up anyway um yes so yeah yeah there's a lot of interesting architecture and i'm just like i feel like will could have picked a different room right Because he's just sleeping on the floor. (laughs) Weren't there other beds in this home? There were so many rooms.
0: Anyway. Lyra steps through a window instead of just peering through one. She steps through the window on her own and right behind her there's this artwork on the wall. Kind of like a stone cave drawing-esque thing. Game of Thrones fans, don't, don't think about it. They meant nothing. Uh, But there's Art of Chirigatse with the Tour de on top in the stone building where she enters the window, and it has a lot of Book of Dust vibes going on. I won't go too far with it, but if you look, I believe the His Dark Materials Twitter account actually just posted um, a nice, bright, vibrant photo of it where you can see a little more detail, but it has roses all over it creeping up Chirigatse, and not only roses, but even the architecture in the city, like the cafes, it's a lot of red stone, which is used a lot in the Books of Dust in the secret commonwealth. So we'll get to that someday. I'm excited. I, I think it has to be uh, Candid59 was just yelling about it online, but I was yelling with them because it feels, I mean, they all read the books. We know they have. We know they're out there. We know they're, they're getting little picks, little peeks at the architecture. So it's great. And it also looks like our album cover, by the way, for our little uh, podcast thing we do here every week.
1: Every week, yeah. yes. It looks like our little art. It was a really beautiful mur- mural. I didn't notice the roses and I haven't taken a look at what they posted on the social media account yet. But I wonder if it's like, mm-hmm. I want to say it was Dark Materials. I don't remember who it was. They were doing an analysis sort of of Chittagatse, I think, as a sleeping city. And it makes me think of, you know, the, the vines over it. If you're saying that, I, I don't know what it looks like exactly. The roses over it, but, like, Sleeping Beauty's city and things like that. Kingdom.
0: Oh, that's really interesting, like, to combine that. I wonder if they'll talk about it this week. I'll have to listen after this. It might not have
1: been them. It might have been a different cast, and I'm so hmm. sorry to both if I
0: am getting this wrong.
1: <laughs> and, yes, but it it was a nice art. You know, people like their city in general, hopefully, uh even though their city's like kind of fucked up but (laughs) i mean it is right it's it's in disarray a lot of things are bad right now they used to have risotto now they don't uh (laughs) summons lee with the little navajo ring and then lee's balloon begins moving in a quicker direction and hester wakes up to tell him to get it together
0: Oh my gosh, Hester is a high point of every Lee scene, in my opinion. She is, Cristela Alonzo does an amazing job, but she cracked me up in this as well. She was sassing him, and she actually looks like my cat, Alisanne, but as a rabbit. If you do not look at her head, don't look at her ears in this scene, but when she is leaning up on the rim of the balloon, and her little body is all like long instead of normal and on four legs, I was like, is that my cat? It looks just like my cat. Uh, so, I love Hester. I like that. I have a lot to say about the Navajo ring, but I'm going to bring it up later so we can keep going. But they are definitely looking for Mr. Grumman.
1: Yeah. And then they show, like, the return going all over in the wind. And I was like, watching the leaves all move from that house. I was like, did they just have a camera there filming that, like, house for a whole day or for several days hoping for that one shot of the wind blowing everything in the correct direction i mean is that that's how b-roll i assume works regardless <laughs> it was just like who's the person who watched until that happened and yeah jopari also has his uh just because i'm talking about zelta his triforce ring
0: <laughs> <laughs> he does you know he could have I- I been like- a fan based on when he disappeared <sighs> He probably is. He probably played it on N64 at least. It's a possibility. If you look at his tattoos, I, I I was kind of looking at all the different shapes, and the ring is, it looks kind of like almost like a Celtic knot. Uh,
1: that's uh, probably more real. Than
0: more closer. <laughs> than yeah. Being I'm interested. Yeah, you yeah. can't see them very well, and I know there's been a lot of uh, promotional material that's being posted of him, so I can probably get a better look, but I'd like to look at them more. He really, though, does look like. The guy that would totally wear the stoner sweatshirt that every skateboarding guy in your high school would have worn—the one with the threads, the multicolored-looking one. Yeah,
1: you yeah. Know what I'm talking about we talked yeah. about that in the trailer episodes, and I think turns out it does—it's not exactly
0: that sweater, but that's definitely what I thought it was at the beginning. Oh, I thought it was for sure. Like you know that he. Also probably used to go to skate parks when he was, like, 17 years old. Yeah, he uses those skills to go exploring. I don't think I'm joking. I think I might be
1: serious. No, I am too. (laughs) I mean, I can see that being useful, you know?
0: That, that, like, athletic, adventurous spirit and doing kickflips... And not to get into it too much, but that is what they wanted him to be, right? Like as we met the grandparents last episode, and we kind of mentioned they wanted him to be the preppy jock kid and get all the the straight A's and get the scholarships for sports, probably be a fucking football hero is probably what they hoped in their heart of hearts. And then the motherfucker did not. The motherfucker was was like, I'm dropping out of Ivy League college to go find myself and do ayahuasca somewhere where you guys can't find me.
1: Yeah, he was like, fuck this, Tony Hawk pro skater. (laughs) Uh, I could see Will on a skateboard, too. Will awakens, though, and as he's sleeping, he also, interestingly, is having a vision. He's seeing visions of his dad in the videos, the tower, his mother's words echoing in his ears. He wakes up and comes to the conclusion that his dad is still alive. He rushes to find Lyra to ask for help from the alethiometer, and then he can't find Lyra. He freaks out and then totally misses the message that she left for him.
0: I have a couple thoughts here, which first I was screaming because this is a classic trope, right? And she put it right there on the counter and he looked everywhere but the counter.
1: It wasn't like a bad place to put it. I was just like, is, should she have picked a different place to put it? I'm like, no, that was a perfectly reasonable area to put it note."
0: She probably should have just put it on him, but she also wanted to avoid confrontation, obviously, because she, she might she shouldn't him. be going alone. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So she did the best she could with her <laughs> plotting and scheming, in my opinion. I I like that he immediately looks for Lyra, and it was very sad, right? Because, of course, she's off disobeying the original plan and accidentally giving him away in the process. And (laughs) he's so excited to share this information with her because he finally has someone to share this information with. He has no one else close in his life. He doesn't have Pan. You know, he doesn't have his demon yet. He can't talk to people. So I was uh, very sad. I was like, oh, oh, well, he's so excited.
1: Yeah, and he's been alone for a long time, and it's just another thing. And
0: after Lyra, you know,
1: has promised to not leave him, and then she's like, "I'm not gonna leave you, but brb."
0: <laughs> <laughs> Little shit. Also, like, it's better. She should have waited. She knows better. I mean, we've had this discussion before. Yeah. Like, damn it, Lyra. She did it. On, she she knew what she was up to, and that's why she yeah, likes Water and Pan. <laughs> she's sinning. She wanted to go taste the fruit, the fruit of knowledge, man. Indeed. You know, that first shot we get of Will, uh, him laying there, is actually through railing. And it looks like we're watching him through windows once more, so well spot there. And I don't know, I really like this more active role he's playing with the letters from his father. He seems to comprehend the letters now. He's trying to at least and understanding why they're important. I really like the use of Jopari sending visions and summoning that we're starting to get because it's very obvious now that this has to be Jopari likely giving him some visions. It feels stronger than the book version of Will with the letters. This idea that he comes to the conclusion of Jopari being alive feels really important. And I also love that they reinforce Jopari's love for Elaine in these memories that he's Mm -hmm. suddenly hearing. I'm curious what they'll do with his death, as we mentioned earlier with the Judah versus maybe Lena conversation. I think they're going to have to be a little more imaginative for sure. And one of the letters Will is reading that his father sent to his mother, uh, There's one that was similar from the book. This is one of the letters. He closes it with, Wish me luck, my darling. I'll bring you back a trophy from the spirit world. I love you forever. Kiss the boy for me, Johnny. So I feel like in the actual show version, they're really capturing that emotion. Uh, They're definitely making me feel closer to that relationship or closer to him and his relationship with Elaine.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, now that you pointed out, there's another sort of aspect that the letters add that intimacy, right? Because Will's been watching a lot of, in the past, interviews with his father. Mm -hmm. And that's not the same as this really personal love, you know, those, those love letters that Joe Parry... We keep calling him Joe Barry. Uh That is also his name. Uh, and and Elaine had. So that's a great point. And that's that airmail He has like paper. eight names, okay? He does. Uh, including apparently Heretic, according yeah. to some.
0: But... Yeah, airmail paper. That is what it is. You are correct.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that was the chapter. And yeah, he's. you're right. They're giving him more a more active role there. And I think that's a thing that happens well in a lot of, I think, cinematic adaptations. Uh, I have thoughts about that when it comes to Crazy Rich Asians and... Anyway, uh, <laughs> different different story entirely. <laughs> Mary tries to communicate with Dust. She has many notes, and I didn't take pictures of the notebook this time because I was lazy. Um, and some of the most important one, just pretty strange for it said make words? That's... That's what it said. There's also the divination, alethiometer, and the Yijing moments.
0: Yeah, the make words, I almost kind of like glossed over it because that's what Lyra tells her, right? And she's doing this, she's looking in her notebook, like, what did Lyra say? What did Lyra say? And she's trying to re-emulate what Lyra did with the dust. So she's in her notes and one of them, I didn't look at the equations also because it seemed they were all... Kind of redundant, same stuff already that we've talked about. So, you know, eh, eh, equations, math, science, I'm good. But make words coming up Mm. felt significant to me. Make words is what Lyra did with it. She made it make words. But it also reminds me of something that becomes pretty significant in the Amber Spyglass with Mary's story and with Lyra's story with the freeing of the spirits. We have in the Amber Spyglass this passage. Some of them came toward Mary as if they wanted to tell her something and reached out their hands, and she felt their touch like little shocks of cold. One of the ghosts, an old woman, beckoned, urging her to come close. Then she spoke, and Mary heard her say, Tell them stories. They need the truth. You must tell them true stories, and everything will be well. Just tell them stories. And that's what that made me think of. Make words made me think of tell them stories. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and... You know, that's, I think, one of the most iconic lines and passages right from the book. People have grown up quoting that line and, because that's something that really
0: speaks to people. Tell them stories. Yeah, I mean, that's how cultures are passed on and that's how cultures sometimes can be preserved.
1: Yeah, and that is a big part of, as we'll see, that will build up in this and especially in the Amber Spyglass. But we get a little bit in Mary's story during the uh, the subtle knife, but I don't know if that's come forward as much here with uh, the discussions that she would have with Oliver, right? And telling them that, like, oh, this is a skull from 33,000 years ago, right? And then all of those <laughs> things that we've noticed in terms of that timeline. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, now that you say that, I kind of forgot about that. Uh, that being... An important thing. I mean, in the books, it's it's not as much it's an important thing, but as much as, like, it's a fact that's disputing, obviously, what the Magisterium is saying. Yeah. And it proves it's pr- disproving the Magisterium, so that feels really big in the books and it feels like such a recurring line of thought that comes up, oh, throughout, even back in the Books of Dust, right? Like, back in LaBelle Savage for Malcolm, we're hearing about it, too. So yeah, I find that really interesting that That isn't being adapted here, and we don't actually hear much about that in this.
1: It might get adapted. Well, this would be, I guess, the time to drop it in. And
0: it was sort of kind of like an Easter
1: egg or like, hey, hey, isn't this interesting that all these are happening at the same amount of time? But it might be something that they're saving to play up more in the Amber Spyglass.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And by that, Mm -hmm. I mean season three. (laughs) Season two. Sorry. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So until then, Miri attaches the nodes the little notey thingies to the Yijing box. It doesn't really give her much, and uh, I just wanted to point out uh, something that I it occurred to me later on, is that we talk a lot about the imagery that's in the opening credits, which the lyrics in the opening credits, and I don't think we got to talk about this last week, and we'll probably talk about it more next week, as the subtle knife comes forward in the story. Lauren Balf posted the lyrics to that, and it's actually seems like a latin version or translation of the spell that is used to close will's wound but we'll talk about that more later anyways the the imagery in the opening sequence right it's got all those different lines um of dust but also lines showing us the worlds but in a way it kind of almost looks like the yijing right we're seeing it here in the lines on the on the computer monitor as well and i it's another thing that's just like bringing all of that imagery together in the series
0: yeah i didn't really uh i didn't really ever connect the bundles of the sticks that you cast for the yijing with that so i found that absolutely neat when they showed it in the dust i was like ah everything is connected literally all matter connected.
1: is connected everything <laughs> is part of the matter of the universe
0: well All of her fun with this big breakthrough she's so on the verge of gets ended because she goes back to her office and the music's amazing here, right? The music underneath is really interesting and you're really pumped and she opens the door to her office (gasps) and D.I. Walters, Detective (laughs) Inspector Walters is waiting for her about her visitor yesterday. So he's waiting for her and he's also waiting for Lyra to show up, which she does. Lizzie shows up, she saves face, for the most part, including saying D.I. Mustache has a wonderful mustache, which was great. But this is pretty much from the books, right? What happens here? uh, They go back and forth, and well, we'll get to that.
1: We didn't address our favorite moments from the episode this time, but this is my my favorite moment from this episode. Lyra looking upwards and saying, what a wonderful mustache! Just a donut when she says it. That's my favorite moment, and...
0: I guess my like... favorite would probably be that too, but also Pan earlier with the mm. bag, he goes, "Do when do I get to get out of the bag or something like or He's like, do, do I have to get in the bag? And, and then she just the whole... closes it on him. If he had just stayed in the goddamn bag the whole time, maybe we wouldn't be having this issue.
1: But he had to go out because she was like, Pan, I need help.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. And... Double-edged which, sword, double-edged sword.
1: Which uh, I, I have thought, but yeah, the mustache. What a wonderful mustache. <laughs> Just the what delivery. Everything.
0: All of this delivery here for her so is funny. amazing, though. Daphne's, like, really good in this scene. There's a couple scenes, actually, this episode. She really held the line, but I actually like something subtler in this scene, which is Mary. Mary's role here, is, is she repeats a couple of different things and she says shouldn't we wait for her parents this feels inappropriate lizzie is welcome in my office anytime uh i thought that was really big that they're showing that kind of almost guardian role that mary is playing and kind of the obviously we know she's going to play the serpent we'll talk about the serpent with her later but Mm. the guardian role she's playing here was really interesting and i like how much more they attacked it
1: they even play it up right from the beginning, right when Di Walters comes in and he says, "Hi, I'm Di Walters." When she arrives back to her office, uh, reminding us of his name, Chloe has remembered mm-hmm. his name from previous episodes, but here he's really I'll never forget <laughs> telling us, "Y'all, I have a name." And then before Lyra even gets to Mary's office, she tries to shove her back in the elevator. She's like, "You gotta go." And then unfortunately, that plan doesn't work. But yeah, and then as you said, she's showing that guardianship, and then even plays a much more active role in helping Lyra escape. Because she, like, pulls D.I. Walters aside and then motions to Lyra, like, run, now.
0: Yeah. And, of course, Lyra accidentally gives away Will in this time because Mm -hmm. D.I. Walters kind of tricks her.
1: He does the thing that the lawyer in Legally Blonde does (laughs) when he's questioning the pool boy and just suddenly, like, puts out that uh, other question real quickly.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, he's using her, uh, she's she's hopped up on adrenaline, which is obvious by staring okay. at her acting here. And uh, she, like, makes faces. We'll talk about that in a second. It's so funny. But she, like, is kind of hopped up. He can tell she's got nerves because she knows she's fucked because there's a detective in here, which is exactly what Will warned her about. Exactly what Will's been saying. Don't run off on your own about and be smart about. And here she is with the worst fear. But he does trick her. Like, that is trickery. Yeah. And... That's probably why, more for me, like, I'm like, wow, Mary, good for you, because it is inappropriate. He is tricking her. He is using tactics on a little girl that, like, you know, are trying to trick her into things. And Mary buys her that second of time and she bolts. And we get the other best thing, which the porter of this Oxford yells, no running (laughs) as they run by. Fucking classic. I lost it laughing at that. I was like, beautiful. Beautiful.
1: I know. That one was funny. And yeah, he does that and. He even calls her Lyra. Not, he doesn't just bring up Will, but then uses her name. And then that's like a tip off of like, you fucked up. But
0: Isn't it Lyra? Ugh. Yeah.
1: And then it's like, ooh. And then, yeah, the the porter, it's funny because he kind of just like let Lyra run because I guess he's like, whatever, kids. And then he sees the man running and then he's like, no running. He decides, maybe I should tell everyone to stop or else next thing we know, we're going to have a bunch of people running. And actually, at first, later on, we see the porter again in shadow uh, asking Mary if they find the girl, and I thought it was Philip Pullman in like a cameo, but it's not. And I'm just like, when are we going to get Philip
0: Pullman in a cameo? Have we already? I don't know. I don't know if he's that kind of guy, I don't think but so. I also am like, how could you not be that kind of guy? You know what I mean? Like everyone, this is your baby. How could you yeah. not be? I mean, it's your baby. You have to be that guy.
1: That's my favorite thing until you know recently when he passed. That was my favorite thing about all of like the Marvel movies and stuff the the little cameo from stan lee and i'd always be like there he
0: is (laughs) yes you know it would always get me exciting and make me feel really empathetic towards it like like oh he could be a person just like me who built this huge empire and didn't fuck over jack kirby anyways
1: yeah but, but i just like the easter egg of like he's there no i do
0: too yeah and also, I mean, George R. R. Martin did it with Game of Thrones. Come on, Pullman, what are you gonna be? I bet he's gonna be the first Mulefa.
1: Yes, George R. R. Martin did. He was super excited about it, and then he got and cut And he got Which is sad. He was really excited and loves posting that picture of himself in that cameo. I love posting that
0: picture of him. <laughs>
1: <sighs> well, until then, Lyra is saved, allegedly, by Lord Boreal after she runs through the streets. And... He he comes up in a really creepy way. You know, this is like a thing where children in our world are taught this. Lyra apparently was not, right? Because he comes up and he's like, "Oh, do you need a ride in the car?" And Pans trapped out ends up being trapped outside. He has to like fly in his bird form to urgently keep up in the car. And I'm just like, "You don't get get in cars with strangers, all right?" Like one time, I wasn't even that young, but and maybe they were just being nice, but someone like offered me a ride. I was like, "No."
0: I said it in a nice yeah. way, but like you don't. If they don't say watermelon bubblegum to me, I don't get in that car. Even if they that do, car. that
1: definitely don't get in. You know, none of it. Just don't well, get in strangers' shit. cars.
0: Now I especially can't get in that car if they say watermelon bubblegum. That's they that Put it out on air. That was my safe car word as a kid. <sighs> yeah, it's a. Uh, it's really creepy and predatory. It's predatory, which of course, uh, if we look back at season one at series one with him and the journalist he's playing with his mm. food right he's playing with his prey just like he did with the journalist in series one and he tells her to put her seatbelt on very forcefully and then when she does put it on it does that thing that seatbelts do sometimes where you can't like move in them they've locked up really tightly against you. yes oh i hate and- that Yes, and that further kind of secured that severing imagery with Pan being outside and her being inside. Yes. And Daphne does an amazing job here. And like I said, the prior scene, when she's faking being Lizzie, she has her face is like a mask. She's smiling and saying things so sweetly. It's very Coulter-esque again. Yes. But here in Boreal's carts, it's the opposite. She's doing the opposite. She's giving her lines that she knows she has to say to Boreal while he asks these questions. But she's looking behind her painfully, watching Pan. And it's pretty obvious that Boreal knows that Pan's outside because he knows exactly who she is and he can see the bird in his rear view because if you're driving a car, you can see what's in your rear view mirror. So, again, playing with his food.
1: That's a good point about the severing. Like, there's a lot of anxiety there for, you know, are they going to be pulled too far apart with Pan trying to keep up? And, you know, there is a trick, but she wouldn't know it. There is a trick to dealing with the seatbelt when it tightens up. And... What? There i is. is. I'll, te- I'll teach it to all of you in a second. But you were talking about the windows and then looking through them and that sort of imagery earlier on for Will. But then we kind of kind of get that with Boreal here, right? We keep looking Mm -hmm. at him and his eyes, looking back at Lyra through the rearview mirror. Yeah. And it's super, super creepy. Big creep vibes. And another thing is, like, I was thinking regarding that seatbelt, Boreal is in a way tipping his hand here with Lyra. And she doesn't notice, tipping his hand that he knows that she's not from this world because she's too nervous to notice. And it comes through in that it's like weird, in my opinion, for someone to very, very so explicitly direct you and tell you where the seatbelt is in the car like that. Just like first thing, you -hmm. know, like where it is, because as people who have all grown up in this world, such as ours, I think it's kind of common knowledge for most of us of where we should anticipate the seatbelt being. She like didn't move at first. And most of us know like the general direction of where to reach. But Mm. Boreal knows she doesn't know where the seatbelt is, so that's why he directs it. And I think that's just another way that Lyra in this moment, right? She's still too naive. She's not as clever as she thought, which I think is part of what this episode is showing. And she's out of her depth. But regarding the seatbelt, when it tightens up like that, the trick is you do have to be unfastened for a moment. You unfasten you you unbuckle your seatbelt and then you put it all the way back in and then like that mm. resets the like locking mechanism once it's put all the way back in and then you can okay. pull it back out and your seatbelt will be fine again
0: but how would she know that
1: <laughs> she wouldn't know that i mean many i people, didn't even know that yeah in this world do not know i that. usually
0: just literally unplug it replug it in pull on it a handful of times and then give up
1: no, you just have to do it most for the most part one time. Let it go all the way back in, and then you can pull it back out, and it should be fine. But anyway, uh, seatbelts. They also like really have to play up her nervousness, I think, in this scene about being chased. And, of course, anxiety of Pan trying to keep up, and her insistence mm-hmm. right in hurry of trying to get out of the car. And that helps set up why she forgets her bag, because they—they they, it's a necessary change that they have to make from the books, because it's also a minor change in which Charles Latrum is the driver for this fancy-ass car, which, by the way, has now finally been cleaned, it seems to me, and versus he had a driver, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. mm-hmm. in the book, and he was in the backseat with Lyra, which is also kind of creepy. All of it doesn't stop being creepy, and so... I mean, I guess his demon could have gone in her bag for it, but that helps explain it versus yeah, how it
0: plays out. He asks Lyra if she had learned more about the skulls, and he feeds her a little bit of bullshit about his collecting and yada yada. And she's not paying attention, as we said, because she's like, uh, uh, my demon. Uh, and also, as we mentioned, no, she has not learned more and about the, the skulls and the seatbelt. She asks to be dropped off. She's kind of starting to freak out more and more. He's getting creepier and creepier, and there's an obvious power imbalance going on. She begs him to let her out, and in the process, she forgets her bag. He steals the alethiometer, then calling her back to take the bag and tearing off before she can say anything, and I really, really like how they open this with her forgetting Pan. Not forgetting, but Pan's on the outside of the car, right? So she gets into the car, Pan's on the outside, is what it is, but it ends with her forgetting her bag at the end instead. Yeah. When she gets Pam back.
1: Well, she has to forget her bag because, like, I mean, it's not as important to some extent if your demon's not in it. But yeah. I was so, yeah, I was so nervous about Pam not being in there. I was like, why Why doesn't she, like, keep track of that or she was too nervous? But I think at the same time, now that I think about it, I'm like, how do you explain to people, like, hang on, hold up, this bird is going to come with me in the car? <laughs> like, in our <laughs> world, I don't know how I'd be like, wait this animal is coming in the car with me. This pigeon. Yeah. Everyone would be like, that pigeon can't be in my car. <laughs> and I'd be like, yes, it can. They'd be like, no.
0: I mean, it can be, but it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, get that. You can't be in my car. Yeah. Anyway. Well, speaking of pigeons. So I'm really interested in Pan's birdness here. Demon mm. Corner. Uh, first, the first bird, when they're being chased by D.I. Walters, is a black-billed magpie. Common in the UK, and of course, when you think about the magpie city, Uh. right, Chitagatze, I love that they chose the magpie for this. Magpies are very common, though, so it's not really a big deal. Uh, The second bird, I'm not 100% sure. I spent a good amount of time today talking to our friend Cassidy, uh, one of our patrons over on Discord, about this because they are our bird person. But it looks like a Carolina wren, almost, uh, which would kind of connect to Mary's wrens when we meet her. Mm. Cassidy thought that it was a chaffinch but I don't know it kind of looks like a mishmash of just like a plain bird you know it's just like your plain garden variety brown bird with a light chest Cassidy actually made this really great list Uh, they've started doing a list of the birds in the show the demons in the show and they sent it over so like John Fa has a hooded crow Tony Costa's demon is a sparrowhawk Ma Costa's is a goshawk Benjamin de Ruders was a Eurasian kestrel. The Masters, of course, is a common raven. John Perry's is an osprey. And Pan has been an arctic tern in series one, and now a black-billed magpie and a chaffinch.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And of course, I guess uh, we know quite a few of the witches. They're pretty clearly yes. defined as well. Uh I think yeah. Cassidy's going
0: to have to take some time to do all those, but I There's can't. There's too wait. many witches. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, s- speaking of people who fly, or things that fly, we have Lee Scoresby, who's now landing off of the Yenisei River. He and Hester search for more info on Stanislaus Groman. He starts in the Samirsky Hotel, which he's like, I got a good feeling about this place. And it's like, "Mm -hmm. he always has
0: good feelings about places and they're always wrong. And Hester tells him that, too. And
1: anyways, it implies that we finally landed in Nova Zembla. Lee has to schmooze with the locals for info. And he opens this with listening to a very boring conversation in hopes of getting more info. And there are quite obviously some other Magisteria men listening in during this yes it's a cute scene at one point i like in the boring conversation a you can tell he's very bored and he says to the guy he's like now that we're such good friends and then pours him more drink and tries to get (laughs) info
0: it's pretty classic like that is pretty much lee going places buying people alcohol to get answers and i love it i love it very much like lin-manuel very much embodies that once upon a time in the north lee
1: yeah it's very that's the lee that we're getting in this story
0: We move over to Mary Malone, very briefly, and she is asking what matters, literally. She's asking uh, the cave, the dark matter machinery in the cave, if Lyra is safe but gets no response.
1: Yeah, we'll come back to that later. But right now, Will thinks that he sees Lyra and turns out it's Angelica wearing a very, very similar outfit.
0: (laughs) Yes, she is wearing the blue, the Lyra blue. Will ends up seeing someone up in the Tour de l'Angélie. The person looks like they're dancing, so obviously it's probably Tulio up there with the knife. We get a little info dump about the guild and how they own the tower, and how there is no way in or out, like we said. Angelica tells him that he needs a plan for aging up, because he's getting pretty close. Getting pretty close. Yeah. I think the scene was good for an info dump about the guild, especially as we work up towards next week, right? A little expositions needed for the guild of the Tour de L'Angélie. It does have a purpose. It did feel like a little weak scene. I'm not sure what didn't connect. It might have just been a little awkwardly shot or I don't know, but it, it was just a weak spot of the episode for me. But it was so quick that I can't complain too much, right? It was just like, ah, oh, okay. Info dump. Yep. Mm hmm. Puberty. Yep. Okay, next.
1: Yeah, I think it was just like the dynamic between the characters. Maybe it's supposed to be like that. I don't know. It makes sense as an info dump. This is also, I think, the second time so far that they really, really pointed out Will's age and therefore vulnerability to the specters. And it's kind of got me thinking that um, there's a potential that this will actually be a driving force for why he needs the knife versus the other reason we get at the end of this episode. It might not be. And I do think that the show did a good job of setting this up in season one in terms of some of the differences from the books. Like, people's demons settle, I think, at, in general, different ages of adolescence throughout the series. But Lyra's and a few kids seem to settle at around, like, between the ages of, like, 11 and 13-ish in, in the His Dark Materials series. But actually, Alice Parslow's, demon in La Belle Sauvage isn't settled yet and she's about like 15 or 16 so there's a bit of flexibility there and I think that's about Will's age in the show and it ends up being quite consistent with the way that it's been presented in the first season with the Egyptians and their demon settling ceremony celebrating Tony Costa because he's like I think about Will's age a little bit older I would say than um
0: it seems than Amir Wilson Mm mm-hmm but but around that. Yeah, good point. I, I think they've really portrayed that well and you know, as I learned when I was young, girls mature sometimes before boys I don't know, I really don't know actually.
1: We say that really? and we're like, Yeah, I love to flick water at my partner.
0: <laughs> you said that and all I could think about when you told me that was we watched Panyo yesterday uh-huh. as our uh, little Thanksgiving post-Thanksgiving treat with the family we all watch, Panyo and uh, she spurts, spits water at people when she's unhappy, and that's all I could think of in that scene. That's it. <laughs> I don't do that, at least. Lyra and Will are so skein' Ponyo. <gasps> Interesting. They come from different worlds. Wow. They're in love. Oh. I hope the ending <laughs> is what happens for Will and Lyra in the end. End, end. Well, we're back to Mary, trying to speak to dust. Right, she's trying again, asking if Lyra's safe, still getting nothing. And as she leaves, there's a man who works for the college, George, who's outside, who says, no sign of the kid, huh? And she's taken a little off guard by it. And she's like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, Back in the cave while this is going on, the screen has lit up. It's illuminated with a serpent.
1: Yeah, and that means many, many different things. I think you pointed out something earlier in regards to and we'll come back to that, that I thought was interesting that could be part of this. But I think the most obvious associations for this episode, of course, are the ones about the thief and Lord Boreal's demon. But also it's going to kind of play in well with some of the stuff with Dr. Haley in a second. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Lee heads up to the observatory and he received a lead from the bar woman before. She said that Dr. Haley works at the observatory. Dr. Haley, when Lee gets there, Tells him, yeah, I know of Grumman. He was a heretic, and a fight ensues. We do get our first mention of the fog here. Lee complains about it, and then Dr. Haley says, no one can change the weather. We know that's a lie, as we're going to learn this series, of course, with uh, Stanislaus Grumman himself. Dr. Haley's demon is really cute. It was very hard for me to dislike him when he was all like, no, you're a heretic. Uh, and the telescope is amazing. It's a beautiful set piece. The entire room looked really great for an observatory. So great job to the prop department. Kudos.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. It, it was a
1: it was a good scene. That's what it looks like, I guess, when you get funding. And I wonder if Dr. Haley's name here and how it's been set up in the show is a nod slash or like reference homage to... Halley's Comet, especially considering the astronomy and observatory stuff. And, you know, comets are made up of a bunch of stuff, including, like, ice and rocks. Uh, more specifically, like, mix of volatile ices. It's made up, well, we're told that it's made up of water, carbon dioxide, and ammonia. But also, dust. Cosmic oh, dust. Cosmi- like, cosmic yeah. dust. Yeah, from, like, like, rocks dust, and shit. Like, I get that. I mean, there's huh. dust here, too. Like, the dust that comes from my dead skin cells. But that's not very cosmic. Well, we do get a
0: reference, an exact reference, right? Because we know this one is written in a book somewhere, kind of. And that is to Matthew seven sixteen from the New Testament, because Dr. Haley's comment says, By their fruits shall ye know them, by their questions shall ye see the serpents gnawing on their heart. So the passage, of course, in the New Testament goes, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. This is segueed so well after just showing the serpent with Mary Malone. We know Lee and Mary are coded as good characters in this show, right? Where they're protectors of Lyra. They want what's best for her. They're good people. They're not bad people. They don't do bad things. Obviously, Dr. Haley shoots first. That could be a shirt. Dr. Haley shot first, right? Uh, He shoots first. Lee is shooting to protect himself and Hester. Dr. Haley here is saying, Those who seek knowledge the Magisterium disapproves of are enemies, and that the knowledge leads to corruption. This informs the viewer that both of these good-coded characters are seeking similar things, also Lyra. uh, And of course, Lyra is revolving all throughout that mix. So I find it so interesting. Uh, They didn't go on. There's a part in The Subtle Knife that the man says as he's about to die. He says, I'm glad to die. I shall have the martyr's palm. You shall not deprive me of that. Because Dr. Haley in the books goes out as a martyr in this moment against Lee.
1: And, you know, there's an aspect in which it's Talking about that knowledge corrupting them or I, I this Bible just straight up might be different. And that line of By their questions shall you see the serpent gnawing at their heart That's not from the Bible, that's the Magisterium, doing that thing to like kinda squash people's curiosity. And I there's another aspect of this line and the fruits that are born from the tree that I think I want to come back to in a later scene in a moment, but I also just love this moment where Lee just like deadpans and realizes what he's walked into and just goes Amen. <laughs> in response <laughs> to the line. I think that's another, maybe one of my other favorite scenes from this episode. He's just like, mm.
0: <laughs> Amen. I like, <laughs> the like how I it opens later, too, for him. He does that with Mrs. Coulter in a way, right? And he's just like, I will sign whatever you need me to sign to say that I love the Magisterium. And it's pretty cute. Made me laugh. I'm like, oh, Lee Scoresby.
1: <laughs> he's like, I gotta go. Nice talking. <sighs> Lee fires back at Haley's shot, as you said, and and kills him, and just before he dies, Haley utters to him, Grumman is an enemy of the Magisterium, and so are you, and his adorable demon dissolves as he dies. And, yes, the lemur demon is adorable, and you know, interestingly, I recently took the HBO Nordic quiz, because they had a personality quiz about which demon would you have, and uh, as opposed to the downloading app one. I was too lazy to download the app, so I just took this one online. And I got a lemur because of, you know, my very, very playful nature. And I just feel like Dr. Haley and I are really
0: different people. Yeah, he is not a lemur personality at all, is he?
1: Well, I mean, maybe he's that kind of lemur and not this kind of lemur. I don't know. We're pretty different, is all I'm He saying. is
0: not fun at parties, is what I'm trying to tell you. Holy shit.
1: I'm okay at parties.
0: It's a coin <laughs> better toss. Better than Dr. Haley. Better than Dr. Uh, Haley. Yeah,
1: I am better than Dr. Haley, I would say. But maybe I should go around telling people, quoting Bible verses at them at parties and see how that goes for them.
0: You know, we already do that weekly in this podcast, so. Mm, that's true. <laughs> I received a lion when I took that quiz, by the uh, way. Interesting. Because of my ferocity, my fierceness. I'm a lion. I thought that was exciting. That is exciting. I, I could see it. Same. I'm a lion. I don't know. Unfortunately, Lee walks out of this kerfluffle, right? And he walks into a whole group of officers who arrest him. But before that, he steps through the doorway, the archway, and it has orange curtains, and it looks like he's stepping out of a doorway from another world and into a new hell.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's all very much those, like, Western vibes that are played up in this whole scene, yeah. which is fun. Mary's visited by her sister and nephew and niece, and she hasn't been shopping yet. They kind of caught her by surprise, and so she gives them muesli bars as a snack, and she promises them that it's very unhealthy for them, because it has chocolate and they want sweet things, and I guess Aunt Mary lets them get away with stuff, and I, you can see from this part of why Mary's just so good with kids, and, and dealing with Lyra, and you know, she lies. The muesli bars... <laughs>
0: Are good for you. They're
1: very healthy, probably.
0: (laughs) I did laugh at that. And there's some other really cool stuff here, right? Even though it's a very short scene, uh her sister snoops around and she looks at her mail and she's like, You look knackered. And all of our Irish friends online have been very excited about this because knackered is very much their term for being exhausted. Those are their words there. So everyone's really hyped about that. And Simone actually commented about this, Simone Kirby on Twitter. Saying that she can't remember if they changed the word "tired" to "knackered" or not, or if she just said it, but she definitely Irishized things up on set. She said, and the writers started to write more for her vernacular as the drafts came in after the initial round of the first script. So I thought that was really fun. It is a fun
1: detail, yeah, and and them showing that come through as as we've said, you know, it's not something I would have thought of or picked up on. So I'm glad I'm getting this education. Her sister asks if she could take a break from her work and maybe that'll help lead lead Mary to a breakthrough. And, you know, she is going to go on quite a long vacation soon.
0: <laughs> Have a nice trip, Mary. <laughs> she, she thinks about this really hard for like three seconds and it cuts away, but it's really well done. Uh, from the books, we don't get a lot of Mary's past as far as mm-hmm. her family. She's portrayed as kind of lonely and isolated with her work and her past career as a nun. So the sense of family and community feels really important with Mary, because it seems that she finds that and establishes that as she goes in this story, meeting the Mulefa and understanding how they work together and uh, that feeling of protecting something that's important to you, like she does with Will and Lyra, and I like getting to see her have family and affection beforehand, because I just think she deserves it.
1: Yeah, she does, and her fun little niece and nephew, who think she's a cool, fun aunt, feeds them healthy things, <laughs> but <laughs> tells them it's not. Will finds Lyra's note, and then he finds Lyra, who's crying. Pan is lecturing Lyra in his ermine form, while Will shows up for round two of his own lecture, but then sees that she's so upset that he's like, maybe she has lectured herself enough for today, and doesn't need me.
0: (laughs) He's pretty upset about the alethiometer being stolen himself. He has his own investment now in it with finding his father, right? So she tells him what happened with the mustache cop, Another blow, another disappointment, and they plan to go to Boreal's to try to barter for the theometer back. Aurora Borealis.
1: The aurora The Roarer? We got some Roarers here when Kaisa visits Yorick. Turns out this is uh, about global warming and how it sucks, because the mountains are melting, the seals are <laughs> all gone, and the bears are hungry, and it's because of Asriel's hole in the sky fucking shit up.
0: Yes, and- Eorik standing at the water looks almost exactly like one of those northern posters we saw in the last episode that we talked about in detail. Like, there's literally him standing in front of melting mountains, and it's exactly the image that Lyra ran by.
1: It is, and it's that mirroring between their world and our world, because, you know, people have made a hole in in the sky here, too, in the ozone layer, and it is hurting the bears. Ah, uh,
0: Jeff Bezos and his magical knife...
1: It was long before then, but yes.
0: No, it's it's true. Very far. He's just one of the many guild members.
1: (laughs) The many. Yes, it's true. Kaisa tells Yorick of the prophecy, and Lyra can't know about the prophecy in order to fulfill it. She has to do everything in ignorance.
0: Kaisa says we are all subject to the fates, which is a throwback to the speech that Seraphina gives to Lee in Series 1 and Season 1, when she says we are all subject to the fates, but we must all act as if we are not, or die of despair. There's a curious prophecy about this child. She's destined to bring about the end of destiny, but she must do so without knowing what she's doing as if it were her nature and not her destiny to do it. So I love that they're referencing that speech once more and bringing it back, and I'm sure we are going to get more of that as we keep going, especially as Lee climbs closer to his demise. Maybe some flashbacks to that speech. I know. Yorick looks beautiful, though, here. I was so excited to see Yorick. It was such a treat to have a Yorick scene. Uh, Kaiza explains to Yorick that the magisterium has targeted the witches' homes, has killed their people, and that they plan to find their own justice for it, and he flies away. I just want to say, these birds don't seem very socially (laughs) apt. They kind of, like, fly away mid-sentence all the time. Have you noticed that? They're like, yeah, well, that sucks, bye! Yeah, I don't know if it's supposed to be like the same
1: detachment. Maybe some of the witches feel towards like human interactions, or they just like whatever. I'm a berm, do whatever I want, and they kind of are a bunch of little nerds. They sound like a bunch of little nerds. The Magisterium has done to the witches' homes quite what Asriel has done to the bears' homes, I think, and you know humans in general and the world doing to bear homes, but. Seraphina, you know, having Kaisa come here to treat with Yorick and tell him what's going on, it's interesting, because, like, Seraphina is bound, right, has to address the witch's cause since their home has been attacked, and she's, like, the queen of their clan, but her soul, Kaisa, is the one who's, who's, like, executing the other part, right, is dedicated Mm -hmm. to that cause
0: of Lyra. That's interesting, I didn't think about that, that's great to think of it in separate terms like that. Because she is being called to the carpet now, as we figured it'd happen. Like, she- you have to react now. There's no playing sides now. (laughs) I
1: know that we're told that we are, right, the same kinds of humans, and that we all have demons, same as in Lyra's world. Right, but it's really not the same because I can't do multiple things like that like Lyra's able to be like Pan help me navigate these streets and he goes into the air and tells her where to go and I cannot do that and I also Mm -hmm. cannot send my soul out to someone else to be like help me out with this plan like this like I actually have to fucking do it like using I don't know maybe technology or whatever but I can't do two things at once like that Mm. anyway that's all (laughs) I'm just. <laughs> no, her. no,
0: I get it. I get it. I get it. And I mean,
1: it's literally the same for you and for everyone listening to our podcast.
0: I mean, sometimes I'm like, could my cat go do something for me? And I know they won't. Jake can get the the mail. That's actually true. So I might be closer than you guys. <laughs> I'm on to something. <laughs> you are. <sighs> Well, speaking of someone else who can do some crazy things with their demon, like separate and go very far from them, Mrs. Coulter also is showing back up on our screen. She's showing up in town and she's in Nova Zembla? What? After hearing that Lee Scoresby happens to also be here, possibly from the two magisterium guards that whisper to her that were in the bar and the barmaid, she visits Lee Scoresby's cell and she eventually asks about Lyra, she drops her empty niceness and threatens him. And I did laugh very hard at this because Lee rebuts and he starts telling her, like, Lyra Belakwa? Is she related to Asriel? Because, man, I love that guy. I love his work. He does some great stuff. And I'm like, A, personally, like, we know that I am not an Asriel fangirl, as we've discussed. I am an a- anti-Asriel, but hysterical. Way to play. Way to go. Like, get her where it hurts. Be like, yeah, we love Asriel, Marisa. Yeah.
1: Yeah, talking up someone's ex and how much you like them. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so quickly, I want to say that I thought that barmaid was going to be way more significant than she was. She has like a presence to her and like her hair matches her demon. Maybe it'll be later. I don't know. I just thought that woman was going to be way more important than she was. And... This is another example, like another reveal of like, oh yeah, isn't it funny the weather and how we can't control it and things because the, the magisterium guards tell her like, sorry, but this weather we can't fly yet and as we know, this is like caused by Jopari. We have the monkey attacking Hester during that interrogation. Mrs. Coulter loves interrogations as we've established by the beginning of the season. And then Lee tells her though, like, it's not gonna work. I'm good with pain. He tells her about his childhood enduring abuse and he keeps going on which seems to strike a chord with mrs coulter we really zoom in on ruth wilson's performance here they reach a common ground about their own childhood abuses and lee courageously stands up to mrs coulter then questions and realizes that she loves lyra in her own way and that he can see it he rattles her and then she leaves leaning against the wall for support breathing heavily and then her monkey demon comes and holds her hand slowly and softly as they both (laughs) stare and lean against the wall then Hester tells Lee that he did good snuggling up to him.
0: The coulter shot here where she's leaning against the wall is great when you compare it to series one when she and Lyra fought. Obviously the subject matter is the same here because she was frustrated with Lyra. Uh, They have their heads against the walls opposite each other if you recall and they're just angry and worked up and it reminds me a lot of that. I really like Hester comforting Lee especially against the monkey comforting Coulter because it details those differences in their relationships and how they processed their childhood abuses with Coulter's self-loathing, including the monkey's violent and then kind of further unnecessary transgression towards the snake demon and the monkey takes later. Uh, knocking him out once was enough so that she could break Lee out, but the monkey goes back to inflict pain on someone because Coulter did not inflict the pain on Lee. They were denied inflicting more pain.
1: Mm, and interesting.
0: Yeah, I found it all just really interesting how it was held back in different ways the demon operated in the scene for her. Now, I'm gonna preface this with I liked this scene a lot better the second time I watched it. I'm over my initial knee-jerk reaction for the most part, but I'm still a little critical of it. Last week, the witch invention where the witches and the magisterium had a little bit of a uh, drama ensue, and the magisterium bombs the witches' homes. That blended really well as an invented plot. Really, really well. But this wasn't quite as smooth for me. It works. Uh, Lee's backstory is detailed here that he suffered abuse from his father, and it's implied that his mother was at least culpable for some sort of abuse or in allowing the abuse to go on. And this is a show creation, but the team did say they sought Pullman's guidance when they brought it to life. No real spoilers, probably not a huge shock, but Coulter canonically does come from a home of abuse. Uh, If you read The Secret Commonwealth, once you get to the end, you'll figure some of that out, and I'm interested to see it brought to screen, because the familial bonds Marisa has are very significant. I'm kind of a stickler when it comes to adaptations adding extra abuse, um, and I'm not at all doubting that the abuse could have happened to Lee's character. I just wonder if it's going to have an effect as we go on. Ruth and Lin-Manuel have a huge, beautiful moment here, right? They're acting their hearts out here. It shows. The scene was given detailed time. It was well-blocked. It was directed. It was great quality. I love the line that Lee gives of, my life is worth one-tenth of that, girls. And I think it was really inventive. The thematic resonance comes off pretty clear. Coulter wants to find Lyra and knows that her way of love is abusive because this is what she was taught. It's what she grew up with. Lee pulling it out of her and kind of empathizing her in a way in this moment is big because it kind of shoehorns her into reckoning with that abuse in this moment and kind of helps form what she might think about during some of her later actions. That said, I wonder if this could have just been cut tighter uh, with the focal point last episode being the witches and what happened to their homelands, it, it had a few scenes ramped up around it and the big scene of the destruction, but in this episode we don't get resolution quite yet on it besides the beginning where they survey the bombing ground and the resolutions being pushed off definitely for later. This scene was about 7 minutes, uh, the second part of it was only a few minutes, but it ends up being about 10-15 to 15 minutes of the show, which is fine. The payoff is probably not going to be immediate. I'm guessing until when Coulter kidnaps Lyra or when Lee dies. But that's my big question is, with this added background for Lee, which I'm reserving my final, final judgments until obviously the end of series two, how is it going to affect his plot closure and his search for Grimmin and the usage of the Navajo ring? I'm hoping I'm going to see them tie it all together with the Navajo ring because that is one of the least detailed items we have in the book or detailed relationships with an item for Lee Uh, That ring we see him fingering, we see Joe Parry fingering in the beginning of the episode, is Lee's mother's Navajo ring, and it reminds him of the days he spent as a child playing at war with his friends, right? They used to pretend they were at the Alamo. That's about as far as the details go. And we do have a lantern slide talking more about it in the 2007 publishings. In the lantern slide, John Perry
1: and the turquoise ring. How did he get hold of it? You could tell a story about the ring and everything that had happened to it since it left Lee Scoresby's mother's finger. And you could tell a story about Lee, himself, and recount his entire history, from boyhood to the moment he sat beside the little hut on the flooded banks of the Yenisei and saw the shaman's fist open to disclose the well-loved ring that he'd turned and turned round and round his mother's finger so long ago. The storylines diverge and move a very long way apart and come together, And something happens when they touch. That something would lead Lee to his death. But what happened to the ring? It must still be around. Somewhere.
0: I love that scrap. It's a great tease, right? Because Pullman is like, ah, and then some things happen and they come together and more things happen. But no one knows, huh? Maybe we'll know. Maybe we won't find out. That's like what the whole entire scrap reads to me. I'm like, shut up, Philip. I do
1: like that (laughs) Philip Pullman does that, that he allows that ambiguity. Not everything has to be tied up.
0: Yeah, he's a tease, is what I'm saying. Stop teasing (laughs) me. But it it does feel like there's something more with the ring. I think uh, we have a lot of symbols in this story, so I don't know if they have time to even bring it up or have anything happen with it or adapt why it's so important. I think we'll possibly see it in the Books of Dust, maybe, right? Eventually. We don't know in that last Book of Dust. We could, but there are a lot of symbols in the story already, so I can understand if he doesn't come back to it ever. Uh, But I want to know how that's going to connect in the story. Coulter in this scene says, I'm her mother, and Lee says, so? But he's about to be summoned using his mom's Navajo ring. I know he's trying to act hard in front of her and trying to push her back. But later on in the scene, Lee says, you had parents just like mine. Coulter feels a little sympathetic here. It feels like added ramp up for where we find her at the end of series two with the kidnapping plot and the drugging of her child. Uh, It feels like it might be added for that plot wise. But as far as for Lee Scoresby's plot, that's what I want to know. Are we going to get background? Is the Navajo ring going to connect back in? Will we learn more about his mother? I just, uh, I'm fine with it. I like that they're inventing things for the show, but I just also hope that Lee having this background of abuse in his story is brought back up in a meaningful way to tie into his mother's Navajo ring that was the only thing of his family that we learn about. It's interesting that they chose to make this the crux
1: of the episode. Mm-hmm. I, it was a little long, but I think there's a lot about it that I think works really well. You know, like rewatching it, I don't know that... I necessarily think it makes Mrs. Coulter more sympathetic. I think it kind of does in that just Ruth Wilson's a fantastic actor, but it depends because it presents, I think, two different possibilities, two paths, two worlds, or you know, perhaps in the scheme of humanity, an infinite number of worlds in terms of the paths that we can all take as adults who had abusive or like violent parents. And I don't know if Lee's mother was complicit. Or was herself perhaps a victim or perhaps um, she ran away and had to escape or maybe she even died earlier on in his life, leaving him alone with his father and, and his father and that becoming worse. There's a repetition of that line as you said, in Lee's life being worth one-tenth of Lyra's. And that ends up, I think, meaning two different things in its delivery, especially in the context of all the reminders of the prophecy surrounding Lyra that come in this episode. I think there's an implication, true or not, that Lee's life is literally worth less than hers in terms of, I don't know, value. And Mrs. Coulter, of course, thinks so. And these are the terms that he uses because of the prophecy deeming Lyra's fate as of this great celestial importance that's tied to the fate of like fucking all living things. And but I think especially with that repetition, there becomes this other underlying message, right? He, in fact, values Lyra's life as worth 10 times his own uh, as this sort of protector father figure in in her life and that he just loves her so much that he sees her of this great importance to him and like i said i don't know if it makes mrs coulter more or less sympathetic in some ways because i think that the re the scene can actually be read as somewhat damning there's studies that show that certain kinds of abuse during childhood can lead to those behaviors being repeated uh by the victim onto others due to it becoming normalized or learning those behaviors it depends on the kind of abuse and There are studies that discuss that, and I'm not a scientist or psychologist, uh, but again, it comes back to those two paths that I think are shown here, uh, and how I think it could actually be read as more damning to Mrs. Coulter. And, you know, the way that it diverges, it comes back to that line uh, that we were discussing earlier on from Dr. Haley, uh, that biblical verse of, by their fruits, you shall know them, kind of that idea also of, like, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, but as we see, Lyra. Has had horrible parents, bad trees, but she herself as a fruit is quite good, you know? Mm-hmm. We see all this love and compassion that comes from her, and we see that in the case with Lee as well, right? We have his backstory, he's enduring this fate, and he has this opinion where that he's formed throughout his life of what a life is worth, that it is in fact valuable. He stands up to injustice, and based on what we see of his actions in the main story and Once Upon a Time in the North, he's... He stands up for what's right. It takes, I think, a lot of effort and healing to come to that point. Hester points out to Lee that it's been a while since he's spoken of his past, uh, which I think says that he's spoken of it before and that he's addressed it, he's reckoned with it. But Lee hasn't built an existence on harming children, uh, his own or not, adopted or not, unlike Mrs. Coulter. And whereas Mrs. Coulter has used what she endured as a sort of fuel, maybe, or anger or perhaps even justification for the evil acts that she does, You know, there's there's a saying, um, I see it every now and then, I have mixed feelings about it, it's both true and untrue, the world is full of nuance, Uh, but it's this idea of, like, you may not be responsible for the horrible things that have happened to you, or that have hurt you, but you ultimately have to be in charge of your own path forward in that healing. And I think that's kind of what's presented to us here with Mrs. Coulter and Lee. Uh, you know, Lee has chosen to be a good fruit despite what happened to him. Marissa has not. Lyra chooses to be a good one. And, you know, Marissa, she chose pain, chose instead to inflict it onto others on a very mass level. So it's actually impressive, in a way. Uh, in a terrible way, Lee chose not to, and we get the sense that Marissa hasn't really dealt with that pain. We see the difference uh, between her own relationship with her demon, as opposed to Lee and Hester. That tender, single moment that Chloe was pointing out, right when she allows herself to feel and be with herself and comfort herself, as the monkey holds her hand, which is, it is a very good. That's a really great and touching scene. We don't, um, and plays off of some of the other ways that we've seen her interact with her demon and I don't know if it's ramping up for the end of season 2 slash beginning of season 3 depending on where they decide to cut it but it does help I think set the stage for what we'll see in terms of that foreshadowing slash groundwork Mm -hmm. for what that scene is uh, with with the drugging and kidnapping of Lyra as Lee points out to her explicitly that just because she loves Lyra doesn't mean that Lyra is safe with her. And I think I've spoken of this before maybe in any of our other episodes of anything else that we've discussed, but maybe not. I don't remember where I say things anymore. And especially in the context of Avengers Infinity War, but um, I think a series that does this really well is N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy uh, with those parent-child relationships and that love isn't a promise of safety. Ideally, in a wonderful world, it would be. And I think it's good that in general, in media, we're having those more complex conversations about abuse. And again, I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor uh, in all of these things. So do not take my word for evidence or anything in terms of drawing a distinction between parent-child abuse versus intimate partner violence, because I think that there are distinctions in those dynamics Mm -hmm. and how that plays out. Um, But we want to all make these neat little boxes when it comes to love, you know, quote fucking Corinthians of like, love is patient. Love is kind. Um, And say that if someone hurts you or abuses you, that means that they don't love you. But as NK Jemison's story points out, like there's more complexity to that, to it than that. It doesn't justify it at all. It's still terrible and harmful, but I appreciate that the show is part of bringing it into that mainstream conversation.
0: Yeah. And Circling back to what you said with the groundwork that it is laying, the one thing that I feel disappointed about is that when I first read The End of the Subtle Knife and Lyra's Gone, and then I read The Amber Spyglass and I was like, oh my fucking god, Coulter has Lyra? What the fuck? And then it opens with the surprise of, oh, but it's good, actually? mark Besides the drugging? mark It's good question mark my downside with this is that it makes that less of a surprise like i liked that surprise and you know me i hate surprises Mm. as me and you have talked about many times i'm not the surprise Mm -hmm. person i like spoilers i like knowing ahead of time because i'm a control freak and i have to have things in the order that i want them to happen or i will have an anxiety attack and i'm like oh man that was one of the cool surprises i feel like so i i hope
1: i I hope it
0: still comes off with that shock you know what i mean like that wait what Oh my god, what?
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I think um I'll let you know what my partner who read these long ago but doesn't remember everything, like thinks if they think it's surprising or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear that. I assume no one who listens to our coverage of it is gonna be able to tell mm-hmm. us if they find it surprising or not because <laughs> they have read all yeah. the books. So unfortunately, tell us what your friends think. When we get to that yeah. scene, everybody.
0: It's so funny having people that haven't finished this, you know, that don't know. I just saw someone the other day go I hope Pan settles as a red panda. And I'm like, ah. Okay, but it's not that different. You know, if you think about it, it's like a skinnier,
1: it's like a skinny red panda, a diet red panda. Um, (laughs) Diet Dr. Pepper, I don't know.
0: Diet Dr. Pan?
1: Doctor Pan. Ugh. Okay. Anyway, sorry. But yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't thought about it in terms of
0: that surprise. And that's more of what I was we'll saying. See. With like, is it yeah, yeah. going? It's weird that they're setting it up as almost sympathetic in this way because that to me is the surprise. And I wonder if it'll affect that. So I don't know. I'm just thinking as someone know. who recently read it as a like two year, what a year now, year and a half now uh, as a first time reader. Because when I read that, my jaw dropped. I was not expecting yeah. it.
1: For me, the surprise is Will going, Lyra's mom has got it going on. That's Lyra's the surprise mom for me. has got it going on. And she's, she's all I want. And she's and
0: severing I- so much. I don't know. Marisa, <laughs> yeah. can't you see? Just kidding. You're actually uh, not the girl for me. <laughs> yeah, literally. I'm in love with Lizzie's mom. That would yes. be like the fake version of it. Because, you know, he couldn't actually put Lyra and Marisa. They'd all know.
1: Yeah, uh, so that was for me the surprise and that scene I was like interesting. <laughs> weird what's happening.
0: Hey, people uh, say I look like my mom, so I get it. They think my mom's a MILF and I do too, you know? I mean people No, think I'm just that kidding. About- I don't think that about my mom.
1: God. I don't think that about my mom, but I look very much like her and I'm like, all right, this is things could turn out okay for me. I'm way <laughs> right, I'm way I'm way meaner than my mom.
0: Oh, I'm probably less I me mean, I don't know. My mom's way <sighs> nicer than me. Well, on a positive note, outside of all of this unearthing of trauma, Will and Lyra go on their first date. Okay, well, yes. Lyra ends up having a little trauma at the date, so maybe it's not that much of a, uh, a disappearance from that. But they go on a date. They need to waste daylight hours so that they can sneak around in Oxford. And they go to see Paddington Bear, which... <sighs> They only show the clips that perfectly fit to the plot, including that they're looking for a scholar. Uh, and if you haven't seen Paddington, the I have cliff not. notes is, well, I got you, Eliana, I got you. Buckle up, get your strap fixed, let's go. After a deadly earthquake, destroys his home, a bear makes his way to England in search of a new home, and he becomes called Paddington for the London train station, and he finds shelter with a family. Uh, although Paddington's amazement at Irving living soon endears him to this family, someone else has their eye on him. That someone else is taxidermist Millicent Clyde, who is played by Nicole Kidman, and she has designs on the Baroness hide. So yes, Nicole Kidman is after the, the young protagonist in this story, just like the Golden Compass, if you yeah. guys saw 2007's The Golden Compass. So, naturally, like I said, all the scenes they're watching are about an explorer and how Paddington's being doubted about meeting the explorer. Did it you go watch either Paddington way to marry or? Uh, I saw it, I'm pretty sure, drunk. Okay. Because
1: I didn't. And I was like, I don't understand what is happening, like, how do these scenes fit so perfectly? I tried looking at the synopses I'm like, where does this moment happen in this? But anyway, yes, there's a... I think the traumatic scene, though, that really happens in this is Lyra eating the popcorn. She finds that it's disgusting and tastes like wood shavings, and was like, stop eating it then. And Lyra's like, I can't. She's like, I'm trying. And...
0: (sighs) It was the ultimate mood, like that she was like, this is awful, I can't stop.
1: That is how I feel about popcorn sometimes, depending on it. Chocolate-covered popcorn, amazing. Uh, Butter popcorn Mm. is also good, but I'm always like, I want this to be better, and I keep eating it in the hopes that I like it more.
0: Um, It needs more of the oil to be good. Like You need that gross butter mixture on it, or else it's not as good, in my opinion.
1: That's true. And maybe it's like, so the top parts,
0: right, are really good. And anyways, uh, so. You got to shake it. You got to eat off the top, re-oil it, and then shake it before the movie starts. That's your best bet. I didn't even know I could do that. Yeah, if you get like the nice ones, you know, you can like the the tubs, you can put it underneath Uh. the oil. And if you have someone else near you, ask them to hold it while you shake it with two hands to get the oil to the bottom. I don't think I'm allowed to put on my own oil
1: as part of it. Like, they put on the oil.
0: Mm. You have to go to one where you're allowed to do the oil.
1: Yeah, the corporate uh, powers that be determine how much butter oil I get. That's your Um, first
0: problem, is going to a place where you don't get to choose your own oil.
1: That is my problem. Uh, Things that weren't my problem, things that I got to choose is, (laughs) kinda, is so... The His Dark Materials Twitter account d- at Demons and Dust had a promotion for the premiere of the second season of His Dark Materials. I say season because this was in the U.S. and you know it only took me entering a bunch of times and giving all of my personal information, and then I got a bunch of cool stuff, including His Dark Materials popcorn. And so when I saw Lyra eating the popcorn, I paused the scene, ran, ran and got my popcorn. And then I sat down and ate my popcorn, which was pretty good. It was like with a sugar sort of mixture. And I ate that together
0: with Lyra. Oh, that's great. I'm so jealous. Have you not I still gotten, gotten yet? mine. yet? No, mine got Lost Between Worlds, I'm pretty sure. So I don't That's think so I'll be getting sad. my His Dark Materials promotional box. And I really wanted the blanket. It's a really
1: soft <sighs> blanket. It's really great. I'm so sorry.
0: It's okay. It said seven to ten business days, so it could still happen. But it could. The problem is, it seems that everybody who did the His Dark Materials promotion has gotten their box already. Maybe this is our plea, His Dark Materials. If you hear this, anyone from the show, please pass it on that I did not get my blanket, and I'm going to cry about it right now on this (laughs) podcast. (laughs) That sounds so outrageous, but literally my eyes just welled up because I was thinking about how I'll never get my blanket. So
1: it's a really soft blanket and it's exactly sweet.
0: I use it I use it quite a bit
1: um it's it's blanket weather it was great timing it is they also sent and you know this is like a thing that anyone could have entered and we just kept entering over and over for this giveaway and it was a well thought out gift in that there was a uh, candy that kind of matches in theme with the Aurora Borealis and like polar bears. And they made the oh. joke. I-, I thought I came up with this joke. And then I looked at the next box and I was like, God damn it, they came up with this joke where <laughs> I said something was like spectacular. And they said specter killer. And then I look over and I'm like, God damn it, God damn it.
0: Hey, I thought it was so you. funny. Hire Eliana. And then yeah, she can true. send me blankets.
1: My lemur, lemur
0: demon. <laughs> well, um, Will says that Lyra doesn't take anything seriously, which I'm starting to feel like I'm Will. I'm Lyra like, is here. that us right now? <laughs> now how people feel about us being like blankets. Lyra snaps at Will and is like, just because I'm not crying in the corner doesn't mean I'm not taking things seriously. And then Damn. she tells him how she lost her best friend, Roger, who was killed by her dad. Neat. And tells him about all the guilt she's feeling. Also neat. And Will's like, I I I was just worried about you. That's why I came looking for you. Sorry. I love you. (laughs) Yeah, they love each other. And they watch the movie. And Pan peeks his little head out to watch while Paddington's going through windows to a beautiful world. Like exactly the same looking window, you know, that Will and Lyra do. And Pan keeps watching it. And his little mouth keeps opening and closing. Like little like gasps gasps and like watching. And it's just so
1: sweet. I'm just so... I'm very happy that Pan was able to watch the movie. He yeah. hates being in the little bag, so I'm glad that he like was able to be like, ooh, fun. That's what the thing I was
0: it? thinking about with him in the bag. I was like, oh, is that how you guys are saving your money on demons this this series? <laughs> Put Pan in the yeah. bag
1: <laughs> But all of these small fan service moments, I'm like, I'm here, I'm here, I'm in it. I'm yeah, no, here this is it.
0: what we want. This is the cutest shit. Uh they know how to do fan service, you know, like There's a certain show that I won't name that uh, wrote (laughs) not great, like, their fan service was not great. And it's like, you have the internet at your disposal. Like, it is 20-whatever, and you have the internet at your disposal, and you can't figure out how to do fan service right? His Dark Materials is crushing it with the fan service. Okay, but there were a lot of
1: people who, for a lot of seasons of that show, thought they were doing the fan service well and right. And I was like, this is what you're going to get at the end. Was I right? Yes. Um... So Lord Boreal DMs Mrs. Coulter that he knows where Lyra
0: is. Wow. First of all, he calls her Mrs. Coulter in the note. And I'm like, damn, not even going to try the first name basis. Like, what Mm -mm. a simp, first of all. (laughs) Mrs. Coulter, I found Lyra. Because he thought, and he has the upper hand, right? Like, he's been keeping this close to his heart. This has been his upper hand having Lyra info and she does not. And so now he's like, hey, I got your girl. And uh, that's a threat. That's a threat, right? Like, if you recall their last conversation, he said to her, has your daughter's demon settled? Think about that, and then put that in the context of her in the car freaking out, begging him to let her out of the car.
1: Yikes! Yeah. It's interesting. It's a little different dynamic. I think it's, it works, it makes things a little more complex, uh, but from the books, where he's just like, yeah, I've seen your daughter. He doesn't really, like, hold her over her head or anything. Yeah. Uh mrs coulter though then heads back to lee's cell uh is prompted by this i guess because she's worried about lord boreal and mrs coulter's demon attacks the guard's snake demon and as you pointed out earlier chloe uh kind of takes its anchor out on it and that's another that's another snake another snake that's coming up with the whole snake (laughs) thing in the computer uh yeah mrs coulter enters she gives lee keys to escape telling him what his story is going to be, which is that he stole them from the guard. And then Leek now continue up the Yenisei River. Mrs. Coulter asks him to trust no one. Keep Lyra safe if he finds her. And to fight every battle in his mind.
0: Inside As- and outside. <laughs> oh Yes, that's the At one. the same time.
1: <sighs> As Mrs. Coulter leaves, her demon goes back to attacking the guard's demon for a moment. And then Mary is doing her own
0: thing. Yeah, Mary is trying her hand over at the Yijing in the next scene, and the cave lights up simultaneously. It's intercut while she practices in her home. Really cool. If you watch it, try to look at the lights when you're watching Mm -hmm. it, because the lights, as you zoom into the cave, there are these horizontal strips of light. And as you zoom in, you can see them reflected in the glass. These horizontal lines look like the lines of the Yijing. So the very lines that when you throw down the sticks of the I uh, throw them down, you'll get lines basically that you then look at what they mean, translate them and make your little hex circle or hex square, I should say, of lines. And uh, you can see reflected in the glass, you can kind of see the lines of the lights reflected in the glass before it lights up super bright. Uh, it makes them look like the actual interpretations that will end up on the screen in just a moment.
1: I didn't notice that. I'll have to check that out. And it seems like the mass of wires of the cave that we're getting back there, that is the one that we see in the opening sequence. Um, so the scene shows us the bundles of the Yijing, uh, Mary doing it on her bed, divining, and then her drawing the lines and trying to decipher their meanings. It also then gets reflected in the now turned on computer, the cave, and... Mary finds that it says, to the mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders from a book that's helping her interpret her yijing. And then again, the screen of the cave is shown and the matter, the dust, seems to be flying out of her computer screen. It's, it's
0: very dramatic. To come back to the line that Mary reads, to the mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders, that is from the philosopher Lao Tzu, uh, an ancient Chinese divination text or oracle, The Book of Changes, or Changes of Zhou, is what Mary seems to be reading here. Uh, Many commonly refer to it as the Book of Changes. There's more than two and a half millennia's worth of commentary and interpretation, right? As far as the Yijing goes, over two and a half millennia. That is a very long time. Uh, The Changes of Zhou, it's an influential text read throughout the world, and it became part of the Five Classics in 2nd century BC, basically informed divination in the East, A lot of people have changed to using coins to decide the numbers that allege the hexagram reading, which is what those lines we see both on the cave screen and that Mary Malone is writing down in her notebook. Uh, And the gyro sticks, which is what we're seeing, are reflected again in that cave, as you said, in the cave screen. This started in the Zhou dynasty with Claromancy, but changed from coins over to these gyro sticks there are two main lines that parallel each other in the I Ching, and they're represented in dark and light forces, yin and yang, for balance. I'd relate it to basically playing tarot cards or doing a reading uh, help dyads. If you're in help dyads or die. a lot of people feel it's very explorative of the subconscious, and obviously it is very much so in relation to how Lyra uses her lithiometer in harnessing that capacity of your subconscious arbitration.
1: Yeah, and we're going to see this play a role in the story. And if it weren't for the show, I don't think that I would have made this connection. But it is a quite explicit connection between the Yijing and the cave and their similarities. Maybe others have talked about this before. um, And I think that it's a very smart way that they've interlaced the two. And I'm sure that actually Philip Pullman probably intended these connections uh, when he was writing this all together probably uh, because you know he he has mary's involvement and has explicitly decided to use that computer for the cave and Mm -hmm. we've spoken before about lyra's role as a translator when it comes to these different languages with mary she explains again at first that she's using that language of pictures and that the computer can be programmed to use this language of words that we all understand and then we see mary coding at the beginning of the episode and the first few functions that she uh, gets it to do, are allowing her to ask the cave, is Lyra safe? And the outputs would only be Y slash N, yes or no, true or false, right? It's a very, very simple command to an extent, but I I don't know, probably dividing the universe's will is not simple at all, whatever. Um, But what she has here is a, it's a sort of Boolean data, is what we would call it in terms of logic or, or programming. There's only two values that can be outputted, that Y or N or zero or one, true or false, it's named for the mathematician, logician and philosopher, George Boole. But the basis, uh, so again, true or false, but the basis for all computer code is binary language, which is not just zero or one, but many zeros or ones together, creating bits and then bytes. And we expand the number of, we expand the number of slots of the zeros and ones that we have as we go in higher powers of two, binary uses a language that is based in powers of two. So for example, to, to give you some, some uh, idea of it, to write the number zero in binary is just zero. To write the number one in binary is just one. If you want to write the number two in binary with only zeros and ones, you write one zero. To write the number three is one one. To write the number four is one zero, zero. And we keep going, right? And each of these individual little slots is called a bit. The zero, one uh, is about like, if it's on or off, right? Things like that. Uh, And each byte is made up of eight bits. So it's like eight zeros, or eight ones, or eight combinations of zeros and ones, right? To denote things. Um, And there are many who would say that everything is expressible, in the binary language, it's the language, of course, of computers. And the basis for this language, I would say, is actually very, very similar to the structure of the jing, made up of the yin, the broken line, or the yang, the solid line, that negative or positive energy, light or dark. And uh, they actually do, some of them have binary values that are uh, attached to them. I don't know that much, but some, people have already made this connection before. But in terms of the actual jing, but there are 64 hexagrams, as they're called, uh, those which you can see Mary drawing in her notebook. And interestingly, right, 2 to the 6th power is how you get 64. It makes sense. It's made up of six lines. That's the number of possibilities that you can have, whatever. But like the language of zeros and ones, it seems that a great deal is quite expressible through the Yijing. Uh, and, but unfortunately... uh. So I thought it would be really cool, but when you hear hex codes referred to in programming, it's not the same hex as in hexagrams. It kind of is, but uh, hexagrams, right, is denoting six, and uh, the hex in hex codes actually stands for hexadecimal, which is 16 and not six. So that's pretty different. It's two to the fourth power, and it's a uh, it's a difference of like ten. <laughs> Anyways, the show draws uh, that connection though with the way that it's like edited everything by having the cave unlocking uh, and reflecting the Yijing sticks on its on its screen. Uh, even though Mary's using them from far away, it's it's clever and it really makes sense in that it's showing that both of these are using the same
0: base language. Hmm, that is really smart. I didn't really. Again, linguistics, but mathematical linguistics, I guess. I didn't really put it into those terms until now, but I'm really interested in that. Good call. Beeps and boops. With the binary, I just didn't. Wow. Wow. And to bring back that quote, on top of our mathematics, to bring back that quote uh, that we talked about earlier with Lao Tzu, there's also the Sutra of Everlasting Peace in Taoism. Man's spirit likes to be clear, but the mind disturbs it. Man's mind likes quietness, but desire enslaves it. When desire is transcended, mind will return to its quietness, and when the mind is pure, the spirit will return to its clearness.
1: Mm. Uh, I don't know any of these feelings. Um,
0: I, I'm just anxious all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I like, never try to I read like your lethiometer during the COVID. I don't think I
1: could, I don't think, there are people the Alethiometer won't work for, and I'm one of them.
0: Uh, Only ask Jeeves, only smarter child for me. Will and Lyra end up tasked in the next part as well. Mary's not the only one with a task at hand. Will and Lyra arrive at Boreal's house, and he extorts them. He'll give them the Alethiometer, but they must bring him a carved knife from the tower in Chitagatse.
1: So, my partner raised a really great question of, like, wait, how does Lord Boreal know about the knife? Uh, and has he actually been in the world of Chittagasse? And, I mean, it, it's probably been rumored for a while, the knife, but I was like, yes, that is a fantastic point. And I think that he has been in Chittagasse. It's not, like, explicitly stated, I think, but when it was safer, right, because, like, Lord Boreal had found a window into Chittagasse probably before, and then into Will's world. Mm-hmm. And it seems like know but now it seems like much more unsafe right with the influx of specters because of asriel tearing a hole into the world before there were specters but not as many
0: yeah and it's interesting you bring that up because just like last night jack thorne on twitter mentioned uh something really interesting about the bottle episode that we are losing of asriel this season. oh right this series, we were supposed to get an episode of Asriel. It was supposed to be the last episode, uh, and it was supposed to kind of be a bottle episode of him, possibly him building the kingdom that he's building up, everything. And Jack Thorne said on Twitter that the actor, Louis McDougal, that plays Tulio in the episode airing for episode four, uh, he's an incredible young actor and that he was featured strongly in the Asriel standalone episode.
1: That's so sad. I'm sad for Lewis McDougall's career that he's losing this this performance because
0: of COVID I am too. Now that being said, though, Tulio was in Azriel's episode, so that to me says that maybe there would be flashbacks of Azriel going to Chitagatze and meeting Tulio and learning of ah. the knife through him and him seeking it. I would imagine that yeah. is who he learned seeking it from, it for since his we don't know plans. anything about Tulio's backstory. Yes, so I'm guessing that That is what the bottle episode entailed. And I think that's really smart. That's a really great way to adapt Tulio and give Lewis more stage time as well. Um, I would have, man, it's too bad because we're probably not going to see this episode from what they've said. They said it just, it did not happen. Literally the first day of filming is when they were like, oh, well, we have to close down filming tomorrow. So I imagine there's nothing left of it, but I would love even just the script or something. Yeah, storyboards, Yeah, storyboards yeah maybe someday.
1: yeah, we got some of that eventually, right?, uh, with the effort of some fans to seek it out from the Golden Compass movie. So yes. that could happen for us one day. and anyways, so th- we have a lot of incredible young actors, I think the so I'm sad I'm sad for Lewis and looking forward to the scenes we do get of him, which will probably be what this week, right? Yeah, this coming episode here. yes, which will probably be this coming episode.
0: Uh, anyway. So, back to this one. Yeah, they don't really have much other choice than straight up going to get the knife for Boreal, right? They need the alethiometer.
1: Yeah, they do. Uh, When they're at Boreal's house, though, I thought, you know, doubling back for a second when they enter, we see Will and Lyra actually through the security cams. And I think it's funny because you have like the name for it. It's like lat cam. And I'm like, did he just like fucking name these latrum cam? And I think it's so funny. There's like a one and two. But I do imagine that maybe this footage will be used to convince Mrs. Coulter that he has seen Lyra and look, here she is.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's I didn't think about that. That's actually really interesting. I imagine so. I also like that they're being watched through a lens, mm-hmm. right? Not amber, but uh and not not one of the photogram lenses, right? This is a different camera, but this ring camera is watching them. So interestingly enough, there's so much going on at Boreal's house. It's funny, we were talking about this on Discord. I was talking with our friend Pete over on our Discord about this, and uh it, it didn't look what I expected. It was much more modern than I expected it to look. Mm-hmm. And I'm not complaining, I just it's it's not, I thought it was going to be like rich old people leather, you know, like fanciest office crap, super luxurious office chairs out of very rich dark brown leather. And uh, I was thinking like stained dark wood. And I don't know, it just, I was surprised because it's actually very modern. And when you get into the home of him, uh, you get a large section of the Titanic. Lucy, the earliest human oh, skeleton, that's is in nice. there a spacesuit, and then also Joel Collins, the set designer lead, who also is the one giving us this information, I'm telling you. Uh, He put it out on Twitter the other day, and there's a copy of his burst appendix. But how does he know what it looks like? His burst appendix? Like a a photogram of it, I believe is what it is. Oh, like
1: a, like a probably x-ray or something of it. Yes, gotcha. Yes. I thought like he asked his doctors, like he could see his burst appendix <laughs> and then made a 3D anatomical model of his burst appendix. I'm like, wow.
0: I'm could like, you that's imagine cool. He went I over could. to the prop guy and he was like, hey, hey, you want to 3D print me this? And as I've heard from the head of props there, he's mentioned that 3D printing is not always easy. So it could have been 80 times just to get a burst appendix.
1: Or molded. Either way, I thought that's what it was. It was like, damn, interesting. I want to do that. (laughs) But my my appendix is not burst. But in general, uh,
0: yeah, There's a lot of other stuff, too. I can't quite see. But those were just the biggest things you can see. There's a handful of other things going on in his collection. So I'm excited for the episode they go back. I'm guessing it's not this coming episode, but maybe episode five is the episode they'll be going back. Because we'll get a better look, probably, at Boreal's house
1: yeah and i i also had thought that his house would look the same as you said and i think that it's written that way in the books but this makes sense for this sleek sexy boreal that we get in the show and yeah. the, the way that he has the display cases is interesting he has it inside his walls looking like windows into other worlds perhaps but also most interestingly of all the places he can put the alethiometer it seems like he's keeping it in his
0: bar area like he opens it and I'm like those are the glasses for drinks hey safest place in the whole house okay no one's Easy. going there except him
1: I mean is it I mean the bar area though
0: that's where I would go first personally but I mean same <laughs>
1: so oh, I thought that was funny
0: yeah it's a it's a good end it's a good hard end right that now we have that anxiety back of uh, now we have to go deal with getting another thing on our quest and it leads pretty well, right? Like we know what this upcoming episode is. Angelica, the girl in the story here, she ends up telling Will, "Yeah, there's there's a there's a tower, and you can't get into it." And then you know you have all this information being kind of info dumped little bit through little bit in this episode, all building up for our fourth episode, which I am very excited about because we will finally get into that yes. tower. Yes, and. Mr. Paradisi, yes, I'm very I'm so excited. excited
1: for him. Mr.
0: I don't Peridisi.
1: know
0: why. Well, it's just, Terrence Stamp. That's why he's a uh, damn badass. I just love that character so much. No, it's going to be very good, and I'm excited to see Tulio actually, since yeah. we really don't get to see him much in the trailer. We see just kind of part of him, uh, and it's going to get gory. I mean, we're really we don't have to do yes. a speculation because we all kind of know what's coming up.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you're right. I am interested in seeing Tulio's actor. They've really just talked him up. I'm like, yeah, let's get him.
0: Let's have Lewis. Yeah, that's all we can say. That's it. That's what we got. I, uh, I'm excited to go watch this other episode. <laughs> it's been a really good season. This wasn't my favorite episode of the series so far. I think episode two and episode one yeah. were a little stronger. But I think episode four is really going to be strong. I think it's going to start from episode four through episode seven. I mean, we have three episodes after this left. So sad. We were yeah. supposed to have four episodes, I guess. alas yeah, We were supposed to have eight whole episodes, but we might never get that uh, bottle episode the of Asriel. The Specters ate it. They ate <laughs> number eight. Well, thank you so much for listening in today to our coverage of His Dark Materials, Episode 3 of Series 2, Theft. If you enjoyed listening today, be sure to return weekly on Mondays when we release these episodes until the series is over, until we get to go on break for a little bit until Series 3. You can subscribe to us on many listening platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, Pandora, you name it. Yes. And of course, you know,
1: we are on social media. And feel free to let us know your thoughts on the episodes. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter, or shoot us an email at
0: girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, and if you have some money banging around in your pocket, feel free to head over to Patreon and throw us a tip. No worries if not, but we are doing some really fun things on Patreon, and next month you do not want to miss the special episode that we will be putting out for patrons in the $5 tier and above. Every other month, patrons get His Dark Materials special release content, an episode, something special, depending on what the month is or what we're feeling like. And if you're in our $10 and above tier on Patreon, you can join a very active bunch of fans in the Discord where we're talking about the episode with spoilers, without spoilers, everything his dark materials spoilers, absolutely. So come on down. That's Patreon.com slash Gone canon. Yes.
1: And this month's episode for Patreon was about the Song of Ice and Fire series and covered the Lysine Spring and the End of Regency from the Fire and Blood Book. But next month will be about his dark materials, so
0: It's a Christmas and by next miracle! Month we
1: mean December. I don't know when you're listening to this.
0: The Crux we're on the cusp we're on the cusp for sure (laughs) like will wow maybe my demon will settle soon apparently into a lemur oh my god as always I have been one of your demonless hosts (laughs) willie and I too have been another one of your lonely demonless hosts Eliana do you think someone's gonna send me a blanket because I really want the his dark materials blanket I mean I hope they do I was like, do I want to tell her I'll send her my blanket? Then I was like, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm sorry.
1: I'm sorry. (sighs) Tune in next week when I might have a blanket. Hopefully. Pray for Chloe. Amen. Goodbye. (laughs) Amen.